Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Dr. Dave Heitman. Dave brings a significant amount of knowledge and experience to the table, and I am thrilled to be able to bring him to you to share this information with you. I will let him speak for himself when it comes to his background, his bio, and everything he knows and why he knows it, and then we'll dive into programming and get into my passion, the foot. So let's tune in. Dr. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Well, I know we touched base, you know, off recording several days ago and really found out we had a ton in common regarding our um, audiences and our training, our training thought process and theories. And so I really wanted to get you on here um, to dive more into what um, what you do as far as programming, how we relate the foot to all of this, um, how all of this can help minimize our injuries as athletes. Um, yeah. Sound good? It's an amazing topic. Awesome. <laughs> it's something that I'm most passionate about. <laughs> awesome. Let's start first, though, because there's quite a bit of a background story on how this all became to fruition for you. So let's kind of dive into your story a little bit. Um, your multiple injuries, your health stuff <laughs> that all happened. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, one of those like you can't make this stuff up kind of story. Um, <laughs> so I started in the uh, the passion around health, wellness, and fitness uh, all the way back in fourth grade when I had written on a piece of paper, which I still have, that uh, I had decided that I was going to be a professional football player. And uh, literally, I was the person that would uh, shuffle around in a lunge position around the kitchen and uh, pretend tackle my parents probably all the way through high school. And uh, so, but I, I mean, through that passion by seventh, eighth grade, I was going to the library. This was pre Google in uh, looking up, you know, as I would come across supplements in the muscle and fitness magazine and uh, Bill Phillips stuff. And, you know, uh, as that stuff was coming out, like, what is an amino acid? And, uh, you know, I would actually go do the research in a library in encyclopedias and those sorts of things. And by the time I got to high school, I was already doing, um, writing up my own research reviews for my English classes and things like that on like what creatine was all about and DHEA supplementation. And so I was just obsessed from a very early age, uh, which translated into my undergrad of uh, biochemistry and molecular biology in which I did biomechanics research uh, and energetics research as well and and, uh, really fell in love with that process behind the research, but also realized that I couldn't stand research and that I was a people person. Um, So my initial path was to do MD-PhD school and I was thinking oncology and uh, or orthopedics. And uh, it just really didn't fit because I felt that calling more for the general Uh, How do you approach the whole human? And at that time, I didn't know how to describe it, uh, but the shadowing that I had done in the medical system just didn't didn't click with my brain. And so I ended up going to chiropractic school. I specialized in sports medicine, got a master's degree on top of it of sports science and rehabilitation. I did 600 hours of becoming uh, a clinical exercise physiologist, a certified strength and conditioning coach, and uh, literally probably 30 some other certifications that 
I didn't actually take the certification process, just researched <laughs> what they did and uh, took the bits and pieces that I needed in my brain to uh, be able to help people. Because my philosophy was always like, I didn't want to identify myself with a profession, a process, or a certification. I wanted to do what was best for the person in front of me for what they needed. And so in order to achieve that, I'm just a, a constant um, sponge of looking at new things and looking how to uh, approach a problem, essentially. I'm a problem solver. Uh, so then that translated into my... Um, uh, sports medicine clinic that I had for 10 years, and I was a medical director for 12 different sports teams. Uh, worked with a lot of CrossFit gyms, a lot of different tri-groups, and you name it. I was uh, part of the Ragnar uh, crew, medical director for them, the Do Tour, uh, all sorts of fun stuff that way. And then on my personal experience, the reason why I was so passionate about this is going back to that football story. Um, I've had 14 broken bones and torn ligaments. I've had my foot chopped up in the lawnmower. I've had uh, just about every type of medical condition that you can imagine. And even when I got to the peak of my career, so to speak, in five years, I kind of hit all my career goals as a chiropractor would in sports medicine. I lost my health personally because I was so stressed out. I didn't know how to handle the success. My world was spinning. I was way larger than I could handle and get the help for. And so the stress destroyed me. And, and at the time, I tried to follow the normal medical model of, or I shouldn't even call it the medical model, I should call it the functional medicine model, uh, where I would do one test, get a diagnosis and treat that one diagnosis. So I was, you know, uh, I had heavy metal poisoning, okay, treat the heavy metal poisoning. I had a candida uh, overgrowth, I treated that. I had low testosterone, I did testosterone. I, <laughs> well, maybe I'm just lazy, and so I went and did like a half Ironman, and you know, just yeah, I tried to push myself essentially, because like, oh yeah, I just haven't worked out in a long time, so maybe I just need to get out of the office and actually do something. And all of that just made it worse, and so I ended up getting severe brain fog and depression and fatigue and all of those sorts of things. And really what that made me do is ask the right questions. Like, how do we approach programming? How do we approach health? Because I'd been trained classically throughout all these things. And then when it came time for me to experience this death and destruction, uh, the, everything that I had been taught <laughs> didn't work for me. And uh, so, you know, the paleo diet, the, all of that stuff, and uh, it didn't make an impact until I realized that I just needed to treat the whole system. And uh, so even when it comes down to, like now I, I work a lot with feet, um, my own foot journey, I've, a lot of my broken bones and torn ligaments were in my feet and ankles. And uh, I had gone the traditional like heavy orthotics, rigid shoes, um, don't move it if it's painful. And I spent a lot of years actually reversing that because it had basically destroyed me. So I had to go through the um, breaking of the arthritis process um, and really getting my foot functional. And all of this is a story that taught me that the overall programming behind things is the most important aspect, that there's never one good solution. It's the whole package of pre, during, and post that is going to make someone successful in whatever they're trying to do. 
especially like goal-driven, high performers, super achievers, you know, when they're trying to get to the CrossFit games and they have two kids and they're an attorney, you know, we have to put that into the equation. And <laughs> most people don't, don't do that. They just look for the, whatever the, the pro CrossFitter did, whatever their program is, and they just assume that they can replicate that. So that's what I want to get into today of how I, you know, that's how I discovered this type of stuff. Now, what can people do with this information? And I think you brought up a couple really good points there when it comes to health in, ge health in general, but also for programming. And that is, we need to remember the entire person. Like, we're mm -hmm. human. We have more things going on with us than just these physical conditions. We have more going on with, with our lives than just going to the gym and training. And if we don't take into account all these other stressors that can play an impact in our recovery and our healing and our performance in everything, then we ultimately are doing a disservice to those around us. And, and I call that my stress bucket concept. So I've uh, been teaching my athletes around this for many years where if you just simply imagine a bucket and there's water going into the bucket and there's a, a spigot at the bottom of the bucket, things put water into your bucket and things take water out of your bucket. Now, before I lost my health, I used to teach this as, okay, recovery is getting your uh, supplements, your nutrition, and that's filling the bucket and your workouts, your uh, life stress, your work stress is taking water out of the bucket. Now, as I've uh, matured as a, a physician and a person who educates, uh, I realized that it's completely different equation for everyone that some people thrive off of working 18 hours a day and that actually fills their bucket. And if you take that away from them, that's actually emptying their bucket. Uh, so it's really such an individual thing of essentially what you have to do is you have to fill your bucket from a programming standpoint. If you're not filling your bucket, you run into problems. So I'll give this as a few examples. Uh, well, it just goes back to that example I already gave. Uh, the most common thing I see is people trying to do their programming around what the pros do or the high-level achievers do, not realizing that the other six hours out of the day they're focused on their recovery because they don't have a family or they don't have work or anything of that nature. And so the high-achieving mom who uh, works full-time, has a couple of kids, uh, is running around to soccer games, they're still trying to do the exact same program. And what that does is that just empties the bucket out because it's one thing after another. You don't get self time. You don't get meditation time. You don't get to put your brain down. You don't get to uh, actually allow the chemicals to heal your body because exercise is a stress and we tend to forget this. Uh, we tend to forget that it's tearing your body down the exercise itself is one of the least important things. It's how we actually build it back up so that we recover from the exercise. And so many people forget that equation. They run around after their workout thinking that just a, a post-shake you know, post is going to give them their fuel for <laughs> recovery. But it's really the next 72 hours that you have that genetically speaking, your genes all have to get differently expressed, your healing uh, chemicals have to come out and they have to do their job. And if you're running to your next event 
and you're lacking sleep, which is where most of the recovery happens, and you're just going, 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 the bucket empties out and you wonder why you start to get your bursitis and your uh, itises and osises and <laughs> I can't get my shoulder up over my head and why is, it, why is this pinching? Why can't I suddenly do my, my pull-ups the way I'm supposed to and all of those equations. Definitely. So let's dive into the programming side of things uh, more specifically. Um, let's first talk just programming in general. Um, for someone who is a high-performing athlete, um, regardless of what sport they're in, what does programming look like to you as far as heavy days, light days, rest days? What do you – I know, and like we already said, everyone's going to – respond a little bit differently. So how do you go about programming for that? Yeah, so there's there's two good conversations around that. One in a general sense, if, if I'm not working with a person individually, if I'm working with them individually, we're pulling genetics, we're looking at their uh, uh, athletic performance types of genes where how fast can they recover, how strong are their ligaments, uh, what kind of muscle fibers do they naturally have, different things that way, which will make a massive difference in the programming. But in general, what I would say is if you don't know that type of stuff, uh, one is you have to listen to your body and think of the whole equation. And that starts off with, I, I take people through a goal setting exercise because most people forget that there's a long-term goal, a midterm goal, and a short-term goal. And almost everyone envisions themselves at the CrossFit Games or they envision themselves at 8% body fat. Uh, and then when you work them backwards through the exercise, they don't know what to do today to actually get them to that end program uh, that they want. And then they also forget like end of life stuff. So I actually always bring up end of life. Like how long do you think you're going to live? Okay, pick that number. The last 10 years of your life, do you think you're going to have a, a good quality of life or are you going to be um, disabled? And it's like a deep thought question that suddenly makes what they're doing now seem so much less stressful because so many people, like really, especially the high achievers, they want it now. They want success now. And they're doing everything at all costs and they're running into injuries and problems. But if we get them to think this long-term, like I want long-term quality of life, then where are you in three years? In three years is typically where the, uh, hey, let's be at 8% body fat and winning something and doing those sorts of things. Then where are you at a year? Where are you in this next three months? And then where are you today? And if you go through that exercise, then you can say, what is my programming going to look like? Uh, because if I'm thinking about all of that equation, I may not exercise five times a week. I may exercise three times a week and make it more impactful. That Does that kind of help? Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I kind of had to laugh as you were talking. I, uh, we were talking to, I'm doing a, um, kind of a lifting to protect your back class at my gym or one of the gyms I work at in a couple weeks. And, one of the coaches and myself were kind of joking around with the athletes about like, you better go to a class. Otherwise you're going to be, when you're 80, you're going to think, why didn't I go to that? Yep, exactly. <laughs> and um, it just, it's so true. Those things, we don't think about how today is going to impact yeah. our future. 
Especially in, that long time out. And that comes into, so the, the three categories that I like to talk about in specific around programming is tissue, movement, and then actual workout, your workload. So tissue management is making sure your back is secure, making sure your core is functioning properly, making sure that your heel bones are actually moving properly, that you can spread your toes and actually get the, the right weight distribution through your feet, making sure that your shoulder mobility, that if you're going to do an overhead press, that you actually have that shoulder mobility before you start adding any kind of weight. Uh, that's tissue, and you have to put into your program, in, and typically I do this in three-month chunks, where I look at the program in a three-month window, in accordance to their goals, percentage-wise, how much tissue management are we doing, how much movement are we doing, and then how much work capacity are we doing, workload are we doing. So the, uh, if they're having an issue, someone needs to back off their workload and focus more on movement and tissue management so that the long-term success of that individual can happen unless we're talking like a massive competition in, in this three months, then there's, then there's a different programming parameter that we do everything at all costs to just get the athlete to achieve their dreams and goals and then fix them afterwards kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, having, right. <laughs> having the awareness of that, and that, that was a regular conversation in my office because when you run a sports medicine clinic, people come to you as a last resort in pain not wanting to actually understand that they should have been doing something four months ago towards this. Mm -hmm. They wait until it gets bad enough. And then it's three weeks before their race or their event. And they're like, what can you do for me? I'm like, well, I can put some tape on you. <laughs> like, <laughs> You're pretty messed up. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, it's when we put that in perspective, we can percentage wise look at a three month uh, category. Okay. Let's do, 30% tissue management, 30% movement equation, and 40% into the work capacity. And then when you schedule that out for your seven days, if the person only has an hour to dedicate every day to something, and plus or minus a few 15-minute segments here and there to do mobility stuff, um, then you just work backwards with that, that programming in mind. Of, so... Uh, instead of spending 45 minutes doing a, a, a workout, maybe they're only doing 20 minutes of the workout during that hour. In the other, uh, another 20 minutes, they're working on their movement patterns for a four to six week segment within that three months. And then you just keep building back and forth that way. That's awesome. And I think it's important to note too that just because you're spreading this out as far as like, 20 minutes is working on movement patterns. 20 minutes is an actual workout. If you do it right, you can still be working very intensely with yeah. those movement patterns, like doing the accessory work, supersetting it. Um, yeah. You can get a really, like still get your heart rate up and still get a really good workout during that period of time too. Well, and yeah, so you want to be cautious of that though too, because too many people try to feel like the only way they're getting improvement is by getting their heart rate up. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is a lot of time, most of the improvements come from not getting your heart rate up, but actually working on the logistics and the technical aspect of your body. Mm -hmm. so that when you go to do that heart rate increasing type of exercise, you can make a massive impact with it. You can load up twice as much weight. You can, 
you know, work twice as hard because there's no physical limits, limitations in your body. Yeah. And I guess I should have actually, uh, retract what I said too. Cause I was thinking like a lot of times I will do accessory work, like stretch ring dips, ring rows, and just kind of go back and forth between those and more working like muscle fatigue, muscle endurance factors, um, more that yeah. just building the muscle up versus like the heart rate. So, um, that's what I was thinking actually more than, than heart rate when I did say that. Yeah. Well, and, and two, I want to, uh, I can categorize some of these things for you too, so that it, it helps too, is tissue management is going to be things like foam rolling as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and just band mobility, uh, those sorts of things. Yep. The movement component of it is applying a weight or body weight to increase a certain joint range of motion or uh, ligament uh, stability. Um, so all of those are separate categories that you can put into the programming so that that is a very clear delineation for someone. Yeah, definitely. Definitely makes sense. So why, when we're talking about the injury side of things and we're talking about programming aspects with that, why do injuries as a general, if we aren't programming appropriately or following a program appropriately, why does that contribute to a risk of injury? Yeah. So that goes back to that water bucket concept in, I see this across the board. One of the biggest things is that in our culture today, we're just on empty for our buckets because we're especially achievers who want to go do something. Uh, they are not taught that recovery is individualistic for that person. Uh, there's all sorts of, right. We can listen to millions of different biohacking podcasts and all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, but they, they still haven't internalized that. They still haven't the aha moment because right now working out is sexy the past two decades working out is like the thing. And I'm starting to see a transition, which is really cool that in the next two decades, we'll probably see a massive shift into recovery and focus because we're understanding more of the epigenetic value that we can research now showing that recovery, we can grow stronger with less workouts. And uh, so the research is finally there supporting that. So it'll soon be unsexy to just hammer yourself in the gym. <laughs> um, but that's the current culture that we're in right now. And so people empty out their buckets very quickly and things get weak. They're not allowed to recover. They're not allowed to actually repair the tissue. And so you go to work out on it again and nervous system doesn't fire properly. You're fatigued. You have a little bit of brain fog, so you're not quite mentally there. So you miss a step or literally trip on something. I see that all the time too. Um, and you don't have the awareness, the the clarity around how to program for yourself or to say, today I'm just not feeling it. I should spend this hour doing something else. People are trying to force through the workout. They'll slam their energy drinks or pre-workout type of thing just to get through the workout instead of saying, wow, my body has been just beat. I should just like do something from a recovery standpoint so that tomorrow I can hit it hard again. And that's where a lot of the injuries come in. Uh, physically speaking, this is where a lot of tightness comes in. Our nervous system is designed to protect us from these types of, types of things. So neurologically speaking, these are the people who feel like they can never improve their flexibility. Uh, and they think that they're going, that yoga is going to solve their problem and it's not. Uh, 
it's the whole package of filling their bucket back up so that their nervous system relaxes enough to allow the muscle tissue to get that flexibility and the joint flexibility back and get the inflammation out of the joints and those sorts of things. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something that is kind of one of my pet peeves or is very much so one of my pet peeves is those people that show up at the gym or before their run spend like 40 to 50 minutes just to loosen up because their hamstrings are tight or, you know, all these things going on. And, you know, it's one of those things like if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're not doing the right thing because <laughs> right, living yeah. in this chronically tight state or what feels like a chronically tight state is not normal for the body. And it's a matter of figuring out what's causing that. Yeah. Yeah. Their body is overtaxed. And I see this a lot. So genetically speaking, people who are high achievers, type A personalities, you know, all of those, whatever you want to call them, entrepreneurs, um, they actually have a different wiring set than the rest of the population. That's what makes them different. So genetically speaking, they actually have different neurotransmitter profiles that tends to make them very tight very flexion dominant, so they, they tend to be tense in a forward, they tend to walk on their toes, they tend to have quad dominant stuff when they're squatting, it's very hard for them to actually get their glutes to activate. And that's just a neurological thing that made that person the way that they are. And so in our culture, where uh, they just try to stretch these things out, they're not realizing that it's actually a neurotransmitter equation. It could be a gut health thing, it could be a stress thing, and if they're overstressed, the cortisol going up and just bam, like that tightness sets in and no amount of workouts, no amount of stretching will overcome that. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And um, just so you know, I think you get us to the T described to me. So um, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I've had a whole flood of podcasts lately that are, um, yeah, high achievers. <laughs> <laughs> With that said, I've worked really hard to not be in that very tight state. So we're good. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Uh, where's it going with that? Oh, so <laughs> the other thing to think of too, and that sometimes I'll do is, um, you know, because I, I like to be among the people at the gym cause it is a social, social situation and I do like to just move my body. So there's times I'll go, I'm like, I'm just not in it that day for the actual like hard workout, but I'll just play. I'll just work yeah. on like handstand walks or just be a kid and mess yes. around with moving in general. And, and so it's kind of, it's something that we forget about that even, even if it's just going to the park and playing on the monkey bars or, you know, even though you're an adult, play a game of tag, like just have fun right. with it. And I think that's a big aspect that's forgotten, especially when we get to the elite level athlete that like we still need to be able to have fun with what we're doing. Yeah. They, they've taken all the fun out of programming because they get so locked in and serious. And the, and the reality is, is if you're not having fun, you're fighting an uphill balance against your chemical equation. Yeah, I mean, plain and simple. Like if you don't enjoy what you're doing, it sucks. <laughs> you're, you're, you're less likely to recover. You're less likely to get your sleep. You're less likely to eat the right foods. You're less likely to get into momentum to actually win and achieve. Um, so you've got to pick You've got to pick something that's fun for you and or into your programming. You need to add your fun activities from a break standpoint, which could be anything from reading to skydiving to <laughs> racing cars on a racetrack, you know, whatever, whatever that is for you. You need to 
figure that out and incorporate that. And the primal play type of stuff is amazing. I highly encourage everyone to have what I call the backup workouts, um, where if one day you're not feeling it, that you can crawl around on the ground, you can go to the playground and have fun. But also if you're in a hotel room, right, the entrepreneurs who are traveling a lot, the executives who are traveling a lot, like you need to have a workout routine that incorporates you just hanging out in your hotel room in a body weight thing and bringing a band with you or have the flexibility of whatever the gym is there that you actually know what to do and you can have fun with it instead of just missing it and or trying to do something silly that doesn't work for your, your body. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I had a thought. Oh, I lost it. We need to optimize you. We need to optimize you. I'm trying to think what you said that had, oh, I know what it was. When you're working with athletes, what symptoms are you looking for uh, if you're looking for kind of an overtraining situation going on? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, taking longer to feel like they're warming up is a, a really great first sign. They just feel like they can't get into their momentum workout to workout. Um, Losing sleep is a big one. Uh, so if you're not as excited to get out of bed in the morning, this is an equation that is the whole lifestyle equation. If you're not springing out of bed excited or having the ability to wake up without an alarm clock, which is crazy for some people, um, you're, you're not doing the whole equation properly. And so that's a sign. Uh, the other big sign is that when you go to sleep, uh, statistically speaking, it should be around 15 minutes to 20 minutes before we fall asleep. If you're falling asleep in under 10 minutes, that is a sign that you are purely exhausted. Or if you lay down and, and naps are good, but if you have to nap and you feel like if you don't take a nap, you're, you're like done for, that's a sign of pure exhaustion around it. And no matter what you do, your workout's not going to overcome that. You're not going to have a, a good productive workout. Uh, so those are some of the big ones that I would say easy to recognize in yourself, um, but is a, a big indicator of the whole system going wrong. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Let's dive into the foot and how that plays into everything. Um, since I know that's something that both of us are passionate about and we know it's it's a huge aspect into, um, essentially, I always like to say the foot is our foundation. It's such an aspect yeah. into everything that we do up the chain into our body. So um, let's kind of dive into the foot itself and why this foot is so important to what we do. Yeah. Uh, so I'll start off with success stories because we all like to be inspired, uh, especially in CrossFit. People, um, there's like we described before we got onto the podcast, there's a lack of knowledge around how we're supposed to apply the weight through the ground. We tend to forget that uh, in order to lift something, we have to go through gravity and that gravity is connecting our feet to the ground. And uh, if you're standing on the edge of your foot, you're not having that solid base down onto the ground and you're wobbly you're less likely to activate all of your muscles. So the success stories is right away, uh, people just getting out of their shoes and practicing stuff barefoot and feeling the tripod happen 
where we actually get them to spread their toes out. We learn how to find the center of gravity. Uh, most people's pelvises are tilted, so their gravity is offline. And they're all the way back on their heels or they're all the way forward on their toes. And when they go to do a lift, they can't actually activate all their muscles, which I'll get into in a second on why that is. Uh, so therefore, they actually can't uh, defy gravity as much, AKA they can't lift as much. And so by getting people into their bare foot right away, I've had people literally just like blow through their PRs in a matter of two weeks, just finding their feet and suddenly that muscle activation happens and poof, they're just like, magical oh my god this is the number one biohack why why don't people talk about this and uh it's just because it's so simple it's mm -hmm. because and things that are simple get overlooked and uh learning how to use your feet not constricting them in shoes will allow you to do that yeah it's so you know my, it's so true as far as just teaching someone a foot how fast improvements happen um yeah. i have an athlete I've worked with that he told me after the fact, he's like, I didn't believe a thing that you told me was going to work. <laughs> yep. They're always in disbelief. <laughs> and uh, yeah, within two weeks, it's like he, his foot pain was gone with everything. He was hitting PRs. Um, his posture just had increased with all his lifts. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that it doesn't sound like it just doesn't sound real when you start telling right. people, but once they experience it, it's like, magic right and so let's let's get into that the magic a little bit because it's something that again is so simple and common knowledge that no one talks about it in that our feet are designed to tell our muscles to contract if we think about it like how do we stand upright how do I sway back and forth how does my body know where to be through the walking cycle or as I'm jumping all of that is feedback from the nervous system of our foot. And when we look at it, the years of wearing shoes, we have less and less sensitivity on the bottom of our feet. If we are angled on our foot, uh, I'll back up one second. So when we go through the gait cycle and we think of a heel to toe motion, when our heel hits the ground, neurologically speaking, it's telling certain set of muscles to contract and other sets of muscles to relax. But when we're ready to push off with that foot, in other words, we're just on the front part of our foot, it's a whole different set of muscles that are contracted and relaxed. And so if you think about that visually, now if you go to put your foot down and you say wear platform shoes, you know, the squatting shoes that are elevated in the back, and you shove all of your weight down into your toes because of this, and you essentially disproportionately put the weight forward, neurologically speaking, you're telling your quads to activate for the sake of making it more comfortable around your hips and back so that you can lift more. <clears throat> and so the nervous system is very in tune with what's supposed to be contracting and what's not contracting. When we start to go barefoot and we start to get our tripod and we start to feel everything through our feet, the whole system can contract, which therefore allows you to lift more weight in a more balanced way and allows all the stability muscles to kick in the way that they need to so that you're not wobbling all over the place. So that's the simple explanation of it that no one talks about. <laughs> yeah, it's, 
And I think, where do I go? It's such <laughs> a simple fix that I can be so easily addressed. I think one of the issues we deal with, and we can get into why, you know, how to fix this as well, is so many people go to these lifters because of their ankle mobility issues, because Correct. of the shoes they wear on a regular basis. Um, yeah. And so they, you know, it allows them to get into that full depth position um, while essentially compensating for their deficits yeah. rather than actually addressing the deficit that's there. Yep. I, I call that the accommodation model. So whether you're fitting yourself onto a bike to be competitive in tries and you're adjusting the bike to fit your dysfunction or you're trying to improve you as an athlete, um, and that's where it comes in with the goals again. So it's not that these platform shoes are wrong. It's just the wrong timing of them and the wrong purpose of them that people get into. So if we don't have the hip mobility and we don't have the ankle mobility to do, say, an overhead press, you know, and get down into a squat at the same time, you know, if we segment these things out, um, what is your goal? Is your goal to be here to be healthy? Is your goal to be here to improve? Well, if it is, then you need to way back off on the weight. You need to way back off on the work component of the programming. And you should be more heavily into the tissue management and the movement side because that's what's going to get you to your end goal faster in the long term. That will get you to that three-year 8% body fat CrossFit game level. If you try to just load up the weight now and keep constantly going for your PR with the dysfunction that you have, you will eventually break. Your back will give out, your ankle will give out, and you will just stop progressing. You'll plateau very quickly. The people who back off and realize this about themselves and stop trying to accommodate with things, they improve themselves, and therefore their growth looks more like the, the hockey stick, slow and steady, and then suddenly takes off. Whereas the person who puts the platform shoes on that shouldn't have them on, they explode right away and then it's the reverse hockey stick. They plateau and they never get improvement and then all of their friends surpass them. Definitely. And I think the other thing important to note is when we're talking about shoes, it's not just when we're performing. It's every day-to-day -day life. Um, yeah. You know, you don't even realize the what we call the drop in regular shoes, like men's dress shoes are stiff and about half an inch difference. Running yeah. shoes, just normal day-to-day -day shoe wear um, puts us in that elevated point. And if we're living in that state constantly, then we're always going to continue having these issues, yeah. um, which is why it's so important to get in the barefoot, um, be barefoot as much as you can in your daily life at home. Yeah, and, and it's the repetitiveness. This is one of the big things that uh, really I hammered home in my clinic is that as much as I love chiropractic and physical therapy and those sorts of things, like when it comes to the foot and ankle especially, we're talking, you know, you're supposed to be doing 10,000 steps a day. If you're going to a provider once a week or once every other week, you can't expect to undo everything from a daily standpoint, you have to have some sort of daily aspect to it. Um, and, and this is where I'm, I'm very counter culture to a lot of foot therapists is that I believe that the daily routine is by far more effective than any kind of like exercise programming around the foot. Because if we can get someone doing a simple two to five minute 
uh, ankle mobility, heel mobility, toe mobility type of routine uh, in stepping on rocks. Like I have rock mats all over my floor. And that's part of my morning routine is the first thing I step on when I get out of bed is I made my own big rocks that I stand on and uh, it wakes everything up. And so that is by far way more effective. Now, obviously there's some therapies and things that will shuttle and amplify your experience. And those are always encouraged and it's good to know what's going on if you have broken bones, right? <laughs> so, um, but even with that, even with a broken bone, you should still be doing something daily to it because the stress response, that's how things improve. We have to have a, a constant insult on the area that's dysfunctional and uh, in order to make it improve. Yeah. I think another important thing to note too is there is a lot of research backing the incidence of injury in shoes versus being barefoot because of that proprioception standpoint, I'm specifically thinking like ankle sprains um, in runners. There's a lot of research showing the instance of ankle sprains with wearing shoes versus a minimalist type shoe is yeah. so much higher because we don't have that proprioceptive response. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weird world in the research around feet is that a vast majority of the research projects are actually sponsored to look at a specific result. <laughs> and uh, it's very colluded research, um, very inconclusive research. And we're talking the shoe industry itself is a $20 billion industry every year. And they are going to make sure that their shoes, uh, this is one of the things I write about all the time and, and when I blog, uh, is you know, their, their best interest is to keep people new and exciting. It's why Nike releases new sets of shoes every two years. And if you look at the trends in the 90s, it was shock absorbers, air bubbles, and then they went to barefoot for a little while, so minimalist because they saw that as a trend. And then, you know, poof, suddenly we're back in these big, massive cushions. Uh, and it, it's just because all of it doesn't work. And they just are ahead of the marketing curve and they're selling you something and they're selling it something in a very intelligent kind of way to get you to buy and believe that it's the next best thing and research supports it. And it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in the reverse too, research doesn't support barefoot. Like the research is almost <laughs> pointless if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so we have to resort to common sense and uh, common sense is really like, you know, don't put a cast on your foot, allow it to be flexible, allow it to be what it was made for and, and you know, all of the joints and ligaments to move. And uh, if you wear shoes, that's perfectly fine. We just have to have a healthy equation in the overall equation of it. Yeah. And that's one of my, I guess frustrations is probably the best word to use in regards to this whole like evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice that, you know, everyone wants this, these, people want us to live in and yeah because this whole fact that everything I should say everything but the majority of research is biased they're looking for a certain outcome um and that i like me personally i want to use what i've actually had experience and success with just more of like a clinical clinically right. based evidence approach um because like if it works if it actually gets people better it gets them functioning better then why not go that route versus right all the contradictory research that's out there. 
Well, and that's exactly it. And, and to throw uh, an even bigger thing into it, the way that I like to describe it is we're in that information overload with no one giving it relevance. Mm-hmm. And so all of the research is crap. We live in the, the headline mentality where people read a headline and they think they're an expert in exercise. And this is so far from the truth. And to be honest with you, I mean, there's literally hundreds of thousands of journal articles being published on like a weekly basis now. It is impossible to keep up with the research. And this is where artificial intelligence will start to come into play. Artificial intelligence will help bring the relevance behind all this big data that we're getting. Because it's, it's so, by the time you see something as a headline on Facebook, it's already been manipulated by 10 different blog sites and it's all of their opinion on that research. And even if you go to the research, all research already has a bias by the researchers. The researchers are proposing a hypothesis and looking for that, mm-hmm. right? So you have to have like 10 research articles about one topic, all from different perspectives to actually understand what that equation is. And then you have to put it in relevance with clinical experience and all of those sorts of things. So yeah, I get fired up about that stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. It's a lot of information to sort through at all periods of time, or it can it, be, that's for sure. It is, yeah. And, and it's really interesting, and I'm sure you experienced this as well, as everyone, it, 10, 15 years ago, people came armed with their WebMD results of that they have cancer, right? Everything resulted <laughs> right. in cancer. Now we're in this age where uh, people are coming armed with piles of research that supports their confirmation bias towards what they have on in the exact same things that they should be doing about it. And then they're asking for your advice and then not listening to it because they have so much confirmation bias towards whatever they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they eventually find a provider that agrees with them, which is kind of a whole funny weird thing going on in healthcare and exercise and fitness. Um, you're just finding the one person that, that goes well with you so that you can all do the same stuff together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're that or it's the other one I, I find frequently is just following, you know, all the advice of the friends who have been through it or whatever versus, or, you know, taking the diagnosis for like a death sentence and, And it's just something that's frustrating to me as far as we put these diagnoses and these labels on things and it just panics people more than anything a lot of times. It does. Yeah. Because it's not a systems approach. It's a diagnosis approach. And, and and it doesn't matter if you're just even talking about an exercise prescription versus an actual medical diagnosis. It's the worst thing that we can be doing right now because people think that it's the one thing and Mm -hmm. it's so far from the truth. And that's why I tell a lot of people as far as if they come to me saying like an MRI showed, you know, whatever, it's just kind of like, yeah. okay, I'm still going to watch you move. I'm still going to correct the movement pattern yeah. that's causing this. Like, I don't care that this is your diagnosis because that's just a label. Let's yeah. figure out what's the true problem. And then when you realize that all of the research for the past two decades has shown that there's a 70% chance that that MRI has nothing to do with the actual patient symptoms, uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I had a couple conversations like that recently with people. I'm like, cool. What are you going to do about it now? <laughs> like, yeah, right. Now that you have this. So. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> Enough of that tangent. 
Yeah. Um, so just kind of to kind of wrap this all in together as far as when we're looking at foot specifics and we're looking at programming, like how can we kind of summarize this in one little, one happy package when it comes to preventing injuries or decreasing risk of injury, I should say. Yeah. If you're, if you want to actually have a quality of life and you want to have a quality of workout, you have to focus on the stress bucket. You have to focus on your both long-term and short-term goals. And you have to understand the whole equation. If you don't, you're going to get injured. If you don't take care of yourself from those three parameters, tissue management, movement, and the workload, you're just not going to be successful and get where you want to go, which is why, statistically speaking, almost no one achieves their actual goals of achievement. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So Dr. Dave, if people want to reach out to you, have more questions for you, how can they find you? Yeah, perfect. The easiest way is just go on Facebook and uh, my public profile is Dr. <coughs> Ooh, excuse me, Dr. Dave Heitman. Um, so D-A-V-E space H-E-I-T-M-A-N-N. And uh, they can personally message through there. Uh, I don't have a website for like me personally. Uh, but I do have uh, mom's feet. And so uh, what I would like to offer if people are interested in a 21 day challenge, we're uh, having a half off sale right now. So um, I can put that out there at that momsfeet.com backslash special. And you guys can go on that. And uh, that will be a 21 day challenge to essentially help you find your feet get uh, your heel bone mobility, your toe mobility. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff locked into that. Uh, and it's all of the stuff that I learned from so many years of working with people's feet that uh, I wish I had this when I was a kid because it literally would have saved me thousands of hours uh, and you know, a lot of wasted effort. Would have helped my football career too because uh, the orthotics really massively slowed down my 40 speed and all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> that darn pro football career. I know. Jeepers. <laughs> awesome. Well, Dr. Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, this was a really good conversation. We got on a lot of different subjects and tangents, which are always fun. So thank you so much and uh, look forward to talking again. Definitely a pleasure. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals. If you learned great information from this, I would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.